they decided to focus on hip-hop, which meant they needed a DJ. So they were told about a DJ at NYU called DJ Double R, and they met him and hired him on the spot. And DJ Double R is Rick Rubin. You guys know mm-hmm, who Rick mm-hmm. Rubin is, of course. And he had DJ gear. So Rick was in charge of dorm entertainment, is what they said. And Mike D, Ad Rock, and MCA spent all their time in Rick's room going through Rick's crate of records to pick out breaks that they wanted to rap over. Uh, their typical routine would be to meet... Did I hit your foot? Yeah, you did. I'm sorry. No, we're just playing footsie. <laughs> Woohoo! Their typical routine would be to meet at Rick's dorm, listen to some records, go to Danceateria, hang, dance, scam, drink tickets, talk to girls. And out of the three of them, Rick Rubin said that Adam was the natural at rapping. And Rick Rubin would call him the James Dean of the band. Well, he was the cutest. And they played hip-hop shows all around Manhattan with Rick Rubin DJing. Now, you guys know who that Rick Rubin would go on to be Rick Rubin. This is how it's kind of amazing that he started this way. Um, but at one of the shows, legendary manager Danny Fields, and I knew Danny Fields when I did the Jim Morrison show because he worked for The Doors and did stuff for Jim Morrison. And he managed the Ramones later on and all that. But Danny Phil said to them after a show, look, guys, this will never work. You're white kids trying to rap. No one would like you. White people will be scared and black people will never accept you. And that made them even more determined when he said that. Uh, By the way, they kicked Kate out of the band during this time because she didn't fit the new tough guy rapper image that they had acquired. Um... Which was kind of sad because they did it kind of cold. You know, Rick kept uh, telling them, you need to kick her out and all that stuff. It's kind of sad. And they became jerks, you know, about how they did it. So in 1984, Rick met with Russell Simmons. You guys know who Russell mm-hmm. Simmons is? Heard the name. Yep, at Danceteria because Russell had liked Ruben's music the way he did music. And at that meeting, Rick told Russell about the Beastie Boys. They were all there. And Def Jam, Adam Horowitz said basically that Def Jam was formed that night in 1984 at Danceteria. And that Russell's brother, which we all know is Run from Run DMC. And Russell owned a company called Rush Management. His other artist was Curtis Blow. Did you listen to the breaks? Oh, yeah. Nice. Nice. Yep. Russell Simmons is, is a visionary. He is a visionary. I have to give him that. I mean, um, and so the Beastie Boys were signed to Def Jam along with Run DMC, Curtis Blow. And one other quick thing that I didn't even put in here is that Ad Rock is the one. There was a little tape that after, I think it was after one of the Beastie Boys' records. It was No, it wasn't the Beastie Boys. another rap groups. And they had like an address for uh, Russell Simmons so or Rick Rubin. And so this kid named James sent a, a demo of himself, like a tape of him rapping, and Ad Rock was always in Rick Rubin's room. He listened to the tape, gave it to Rick Rubin, and was like, you should give this kid a try. That kid was LL Cool J. Wow. Wow. That kid, Ad Rock, is the reason why they're listening to, why you're listening to LL Cool J right now. And he became LL Cool J, so the ladies love Cool James. Mm-hmm. There you go. I just thought I, that's all in my memory. So Def Jam, then a Def Jam label employee, Andrew, Andre Harrell. Do you know who Andre Harrell is? No. Okay. 
Andre Harrell was uh, a Def Jam label employee, but he would go on to be the founder of Uptown Records in which he discovered and hired Puff Daddy, Mary J. Blige. He became huge. He became a CEO of Motown at one point. He taught P. Diddy everything you know about being an executive. I mean, uh, Andre Harrell started with uh, Russell Simmons. Hmm. Yeah, he was just an employee. And he nicknamed Yauk Black Rap because his voice was so authentically black, while the other one, the other two, sounded very high and nasally, and he called it unabashedly Caucasian. (laughs) No offense. It's okay. None taken. I know exactly where I stand. Don't worry, I won't be singing for anybody tonight. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, man. Never know. No, no. Never know. You're not going to do a whole Frank Sinatra thing on there? I once had somebody tell me that I permanently ruined a song for them. Which one was it? It was Under the Bridge by Red Hot Chili Peppers. It's his favorite song. My favorite song. Fun fact. John Silva. Because of, the one thing I do know because of, I mean, Red Hot Chili Peppers is one of my favorite bands. They're amazing. They had a tough time getting a start. Because of the Beastie Boys. They're like, you're not like the Beastie Boys. You're not the mm. Beastie Boys. You you just don't have what they have. Like, mm-hmm. you guys are missing all of that. They come up in here, by the way. Well, mm-hmm. I'm sure they do. Because they, I mean, because they started around the same time. It yes, they did. Mid-80s. They, they were, were from Fairfax High. Yep. Yep. And they were trying to break out. And it was just because the Beastie Boys were just coming up. Mm-hmm. And it was the new sound. And they're like, you got to be more like them. You got to be more like them. And, and they're not. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do have... Well, I love the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I think they're so original. And... What Anthony Kiedis has dealt with in his life, all of them, Flea, all of them. The fact that the, I mean, look, Flea I think, is a great little actor too. Oh, Flea, I mean, the first, Flea. I mean, Flea is insane, but he's great. I so mean, is he, Anthony Kiedis. Well, Anthony, I know, but Flea is great on that bass, though. Oh, he's amazing. I mean, I just remember them with that sock on their peepees. Yeah, what was that? That was the uh, <laughs> oh, video blood was, magic, some well, um, give it away, give it away, right? But no, it wasn't the music video. That it was. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fuck this. The up. name of the album is Blood, Blood, Blood Sugar, Sugar Magic, Magic, Sex Magic, it's, it's or something Blood, like that. It's Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the name of the album. That yeah. was 91. And he's always uh, got to take a shirt was off. Was it 91? He that does, but he got a great body. Yeah, well, we he saw slept him a with couple years so ago. many women. I'm like, when does his shirt come off? And then almost like on cue. You there, know what? <laughs> you know what? I would have preferred him to be at the Super Bowl taking off his shirt than what, what was there. Adam Levine? You didn't like the abstract art? No, I did not like the abstract art. (sighs) (laughs) Anyway, so the Beastie Boys signed a Def Jam. They began recording immediately the song. Did I say that already? Mm -mm. No. Wow, I think I skipped over it. Anyway. They began recording immediately the song Rock Hard, and they used a loop of the intro of ACDC's song Back in Black. And they're lucky they never got sued for it. Because I read that years later, Mike D called uh, ACDC and said, can we put this on our, you know, our album to, you know, the, the Greatest Hits album? And Angus Young, I think it was, that said, you know what, look, mate, there's only a few songs. I love Back in Black, by the way. That inspired so many hip-hop songs. But... He's like, we only got a few hits, and that's one of the biggest hits. So basically, no. And they're lucky so they, they didn't So they went sue. and sought permission, and then they set, got a no, and they still did it anyways? Well, they didn't put it on the greatest hits, but this time they didn't really ask for permission. They just kind of took. So they're lucky they didn't get sued yeah, for just are. taking. The Beastie Boys sampled 
rock group ACDC song, Back in Black, on their 1985 single, Rock Hard. Back in Black was released in 1980, five months after the death of their lead singer, Bon Scott, and was the title track off of ACDC's most popular album of the same name. It was written as a tribute to Bon. The song contains one of the most instantly recognized guitar riffs of all time, courtesy of brothers Malcolm and Angus Young. The album Back in Black has sold over 40 million copies worldwide, and the song has been streamed over a billion times on Spotify. Because they initially sampled the song without ACDC's permission, ACDC refused to allow the Beastie Boys to include Rock Hard, on their 1999 compilation album, Beastie Boys Anthology, The Sounds of Science. So, Rock Hard didn't do that well anyway. And the next, that's true because you know what? We were just talking about Sheik and the Sugar Hill Gang and Rapper's Delight. Sheik did go to Rapper's Delight and thought, uh, you owe us some of the money for that. That's the hook to our Good Time song. Mm -hmm. So, where is it? And they successfully sued, but anyway. I love Sugar Hill Gang anyway. So the next single, She's On It, was not as successful as well. See, people think that the Beastie Boys just kind of came out and made it big, but they had these two songs that didn't do so well. Mm -hmm. um, however, because Rick and Russell made a distribution and marketing deal with Columbia uh, Records, they got to make a video for She's On It, and the video was on every hour on a very obscure radio station that no one listened to, except for a powerful record executive's daughter. And the record executive was Charles Copelman, Copelman and it was his daughter. And um, Charles Copelman is a very interesting guy. Um, he, his uncle owned the patent for the egg carton. I didn't know that, I looked that up. Uh, he's an interesting man, like I said. Early on, he signed everyone from Billy Joel, Tracy Chapman. He's richer than rich, mm -hmm. okay? Because along with his partners, he owned the single largest music publishing library at one mm -hmm. point. Yeah, he and he it. sold it to EMI for $300 million back in 1989, which is today $625 million. So he was big deal even back then. So anyway, Charles's daughter talked him into inviting the Beastie Boys to perform at her Sweet 16 party. So a limo picked them up, treated them nice, picked them up, and their friends had to come along. So you know it's going to be some drama right now. And when they got there, they were shuffled into the guest house. They were like, we don't want them screwing up anything in the main house. Put them in the guest house until they can come out and perform. So they were locked in that they were locked in so they locked them into that <laughs> to that guest house and didn't let them out right and those jokers started drinking and after a few libations as i call it one of their friends went skinny dipping and in the pool climbed out of the window by the way and went skinny dipping in the pool right there and so they were asked to leave and so their friend friend dave silken uh, had a video camera, and he was supposed to be taping the whole night, like them partying, whatever. And that joker got so drunk that he, the only tape that he did of his little dirty sneakers on a limo floor. And oh. while the sounds of, like, dude snoring can be heard in the background. He messed it up, right? So around this time, Yauk and Mike D got an apartment together, and there was a bathtub in the middle of the apartment, and there were rats all, I know, look at Meg's face. Yeah throughout the building, 
And construction friends built them two bedrooms complete with a couple of walls with curtains for doors. Because remember, their dad, his dad, Yauk's dad, was an architect. And Ad Rock said he was over there all the time. So around 1984-85, Yauk got a job at a studio called Shakedown. And he was an assistant engineer. He and Mike D moved into a different apartment in the same building. It was a loft space. And the floor was black asphalt, they said, like in a street, and it was a dump, and it was very dangerous to live there. And the building was 59 Christie, and it was full of rats. And unbeknownst to Yauk and Mike at first, they shared electricity with a brothel that was downstairs. And they were alarmed when they first got their first uh, electric bill because it was so high, and they were like, how are we going to pay this? So they went to the super, and the super's like, look, look, look. Go visit this guy. Don't worry about it. Just go visit this guy. And that guy turned out to be the owner of the brothel, and he told them he would just pay for it, and he did. So he kept paying for the electricity. Oh, that's a come up. Yeah, exactly, right? So one day in 1985, Russell gets a call from Madonna's manager, Freddie DeMann. And Freddie DeMann, everybody needs to know, is also legendary. He represented Michael Jackson during the off-the-wall tours, and Michael, he, he was huge. So that's why Madonna got him, because he's big. He's like, you represent Michael Jackson, and you've done so much for him. You need to come represent me. And so he represented her. And his upstart, who was up underneath him, turned out to be Guy O'Siri. Hmm. That's why she got Guy O'Siri, because he worked under Freddie DeMann, and they kind of put Freddie DeMann out to pasture. And you know what? You hear her talking to Freddie in uh, Truth or Dare, I think. You see Freddie in that movie. But anyway, Freddie DeMann, another legendary manager, as I said, he was representing Madonna, and she wasn't a big star just yet. Uh, Freddie asked Russell Simmons. He called him and said, look, can Run DMC open for Madonna? And Russell's like, sure, if she pays him $20,000 per show, and that would be almost $50,000 today's standards. And so Freddie was like, oh, I ain't got that type of money. So then he called back later and said, look, can the fat boys come and do it? Can they come? Do you guys know who the fat boys are? No. Oh, you should look them up. But anyway, Russell didn't manage the fat boys. He just, uh, Freddie assumed that he managed the fat boys. So he said, look, fat boys are busy, even though he didn't represent them, and they can't do it. But I got another group in mind, and it's the Beastie Boys. And Freddie was like, okay. And so, boom, they go on tour with Madonna on the Like a Virgin tour. And her career blows up, they said, by the second week of the tour because Like a Virgin came out and just blew it all away. Speaking of Nile Rodgers, Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards produced that Like a Virgin album. They became the biggest producers in the 80s and produced everybody. From Human League, anybody you can think of, the Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards from Chic were the biggest producers ever. Hmm. They were a big deal. I mean, talk about just like the timing. That's not even the timing. It's like, if Freddie demands, it's like, you're going to, I mean, for the most part in the concerts that I've been to, you kind of mm. have like kind of bands. Uh, they went on tour with Madonna. Her career blows up in, in the second week of the tour. These guys were brash, obnoxious, rude, and crazy up on stage. And Russell Simmons says, either, he told him, either it works or let's just get thrown off the tour in a big way, big as we can be. And they took his advice and they almost got thrown off. They, people wanted them because they were getting up there cursing and women were bringing their kids, you know, their daughters and stuff. That's, that's, so you uh, got these fools going up there talking crazy, cursing, throwing beer and, and that's stuff. My, and that's my point. It's like, 
usually you have like bands opening because of the audience. Right. You couldn't have had more of an opposite. But Madonna loved it. Oh, she loved it. I don't know. Like when I saw you too, no doubt opened. Exactly. Oh my God, I saw that tour. Yeah, she is so different. But again, that's yeah. that's a they're rock not the band. same. But I know, no, no, they're, they're, no, they're like ska. Like ska rock, they're different. They're different. They were different, and that is a random. Yeah, pump. that was, I mean, it was random. Great, but I, I think it, I couldn't it's, understand it. It's, it's more in vain than Madonna, it. who's a pop singer, and then you have the crazy punk rock rap group. They needed an opener. Opened. And she loved it because she's like these guys run their mouth like her, like she do, right? Oh, and true. so they people wanted to throw them off, and so MCA went and asked Madonna if they could stay. Now Madonna said years later that she made out with him, not maybe at that time, but <laughs> that. Uh, but I don't blame her. But anyway, so there's a guy named Dr. Dre, and not the Dr. Dre that was in uh, Straight Out of Compton. But he had a show called Yo. He ended up having a show called Yo MTV Raps. But he was their first DJ, and you probably know Dr. Dre if you saw him. Um, he was with Ed Lover. I don't know if you guys know who Ed Lover. Golly, that's awesome. Anyway, so Dr. Dre was the DJ at the time, and he said that they were opening up for Run DMC at the Apollo Theater around that time. And that every, because they got in being being because of Russell Simmons, they got to open up for Run DMC at everything. And they were really close with Run DMC. And Run DMC took them under their wings. Super cool with these guys. They love Run and DMC and Jam Master J. So Dr. Dre, everybody, they were at the Apollo. So I can tell you what the audience looked like. Black people, right? And everybody's And everybody was telling the Beastie Boys, look, Whatever you do, don't say the N-word. Don't say it. Mm-hmm. Because they had started trying to, like, say it, I guess, at a certain other places. And so, and it was before a lot of people did it in hip-hop. And so, you know, Dr. Dre said that Russell Simmons, Dr. Dre's black, Russell Simmons grabbed him by the label was like, look, don't let them do it. And he's like, what am I going to do? I'm in the I'm the, in the back DJing. What do you want me to do? Now, me personally, I would have just walked off the stage if you start trying to curse yeah. that word in your white boys. But anyway, they're out there doing the show. She's on it. And then Ad Rock says, all you niggers wave your hands in the air. And this is for a bunch of black people. And so he it was. He said the hard ER? He said the. The A. ERS. What? So. All of a sudden, oh my God. <laughs> you got black people staring at you and not waving no hands. Like somebody's about to die type of, the type of look, right? Yeah. Right. So, and he's like, come on, y'all. Come on, y'all. And nobody's waving their baby back. <laughs> and they finished the song, dropped the mics, ran off the stage, scared, and left Dr. Dre, who was on the DJ. And, of course, the audience was looking at Dr. Dre like, Really? Yeah. Really? And he said he ran upstairs to the dressing rooms and everything was gone. They had boned out. They weren't even on the tour bus. And they jumped in the cab and went home. I guess they never said that word again. I would I would hope so. <laughs> that yeah. did it that did it right there. So after the tour, Adam gets Adam Yao gets his own apartment in Brooklyn Heights. And in fact he became the super for the building, which of course he would, because he's a techno whiz and he can fix anything. And he, they said he would get calls during the day about fixing this and that. And uh, 
he was the techno whiz. And in early 1986, before License to Ill comes out, Def Jam gets a distribution deal with the CBS UK. And so the Beastie Boys, Russell, Rick, and LL Cool J fly over for a huge launch party and do interviews. And for this trip, they got to hang out with their heroes, Mick Jones and Joe Strummer from The Crash. Uh, Clash. Did I drink too much uh, margarita here? <laughs> no, no, no. The You're Crash. Good. The Clash. And um, actually, they started at Mick Jones's house. And then they said, lo and behold, the doorbell rings. Oh, it's Joe Strummer. Oh, lo and behold, the doorbell rings. It's uh, Johnny Rotten from the Six Pistols. And they were like, what the hell? And they have a blast. So imagine being somewhere with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You're hanging out at Anthony Kiedis' house. Then, oh, ding dong, there's the flea opens up. And then it's, you know, Gary Clark Jr. And you're like, this is incredible. Yeah. It was like that. Wow. The 80s, man. It was amazing. I'm yeah. Sure they're all having tea. Yeah, oh and yeah, they were having tea, tea yep. beer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So actually, I don't know because Anthony Kiedis is—he's sober now, huh? Yeah. But not so bad. you wouldn't be able to have that—that that Basil Hayden, huh? I don't think he. I don't think he'll care that if I had it, but I don't think the booze was his problem. Yeah, it was the drugs, heroin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, under the bridge. Yeah, very, very disturbing song. Oh, that was sad. Uh, that was a sad song. It was pretty poignant and beautiful at the same thing. Sad. I felt bad for him. So they started recording License to Ill. And Paul Revere, which is Run DMC, people don't know, wrote the intro to Paul Revere. Was, you know, I got a little story here to tell about three bad brothers you know so well. Run DMC wrote that. They were coming down the street singing it out loud. Isn't that cool? <laughs> And so Yout came up with the Paul Revere beat of recording the drum machine backwards. So you've heard it. You heard it when you were coming in, and you mm-hmm. wouldn't know it. And No Sleep to Brooklyn, they were listening to a Motorhead live album called No Sleep to Hammersmith, which kick-started an idea of a fantasy song about a huge touring rock band, hence the song No Sleep to Brooklyn. And Brass Monkey, mm-hmm. you know what Brass Monkey yep. is? Brass Monkey. Do you know what it's about? I actually didn't know about it. About their penis, right? No. <laughs> what? I don't know. <laughs> the stab in the dark there. You know what is good about the penis brass monkey? Be kind of crazy, I guess, if you thought about it. It's a drink. It's a drink. Huh. And they said it was a joke. It's interesting because they started the routine that they, during this album, which is their normal writing routine, which is they would do for most of their albums that they would sit around and write their lyrics together. See, most bands don't do that. Mm-mm. And they became each other's best editors during this point. And they work on each line. So say if the three of us were sitting here, you know, he would come up with a line. We'd probably goof, laugh, ha-ha. I'd come up with a line, do the same thing, and then decide who's going to say it. Um, and they would re- approve the lyrics and divide up who would say what. Wow. So you could write the song, I could say it. It's pretty mad, amazing like that. So, License to Ill was released November 15, 1986, and it was supposed to be called Don't Be a Faggot, but Columbia said no. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why. Oh, yeah, yeah. License to Ill was the first hip-hop record to hit number one. It sold four million units in a year, far, far more than any hip-hop or punk album had done by that point. And in their videos, Fight for Your Right to Party, and on stage, these three New York fools played the role of like white trash, and that's that. That wasn't the term I, they gave that to me. 
party crashers and our party hardy frat boys. Fight for Your Right to Party is still one of the Beastie Boys' most well-known hits and was later listed as one of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Adam Yauch would later say that the song began as a goof on dumb rock songs. In fact, they recorded the song as a joke. The joke continued with the music video for the, for the song and their subsequent tour in which it cemented their image of drunken frat boys. The Beastie Boys stopped performing the song in 1987. On May 4, 2012, Coldplay performed an acoustic piano version of this song at the legendary venue The Hollywood Bowl as a tribute to Adam Yauch, who had died earlier that day. In 2020, Travis Kelsey, a tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs, chanted the chorus from the song in a post-game interview after a championship game. Subsequently, the Kansas City Chiefs would go on to win the Super Bowl, and Travis again changed the chorus at the victory parade in Kansas City. And it started off as a goof. This was supposed to be a goof. This wasn't them. And they took on that mentality, and pretty soon it consumed them. So they, they, they weren't supposed to be that way, mm -hmm. but they took that role, and that turned out bad. Uh, and it's sad because they played the role of the kids that made fun of MCA in high school. They called him A-Rock Lobster. Isn't that crazy? That's... And it happens all the time. You start out thinking, this is going to be fun. I can handle this. They're young. They're 1920, by the way. Mm -hmm. They're young kids. 18, 19, around that age. And they're like, we'll just play this goof, and it overtook them, as we will see. And I say that they toured for almost two years, but maybe a year they promoted it, maybe a year and a half to promote it with Run DMC. And there is a backstage video on YouTube from that tour which captured the kind of behavior that Yauk would spend years trying to put behind him, you know? He hurls full cans of beer against a dressing room wall, puts his hand down a fan's pants after signing her torso. You see that on video. And by 1987, the Beastie Boys were so lost in their new personas that they immortalized the incident, you know, with girls being drenched in honey, cream, whipped cream, and beer. I know, I know, Megan. On tour, Ad Rock drilled a hole in the floor of the hotel and put a hose down into Adam Yauch's room <laughs> to see if he could fill it up with water. That's good. In London, Adam Yauch jumped off the third floor balcony into the pool. They were banned from the Holiday Inn when they did that for the rest of their lives. <laughs> also, they were banned from the executive offices at CBS Records for allegedly stealing a camera and they made a music journalist cry. Um, they went on the Joan Rivers show and presented her with a book on extended sexual orgasm, which that's a great interview that Joan Rivers did. She, did, she handled them well. She, she was could, great. Though. She could She handled them that. well. They had fun on there, and actually they said they had fun on there, but that did give you an idea of how crazy they got. So their DJ, Dr. Dre, left in the middle of the tour, so Jam Master J recommended DJ Hurricane to Ad Rock, and Ad Rock asked him if he wanted to join as a DJ, and he said yes. So um, Dr. Dre would go on to host Yo! MTV Raps with Ed Lover for six years between 1989 to 1995. Um, I'll show you guys a video of Dr. Dre at the end. Uh, at one point, they got this big 
hydraulic penis in a box. So it's the first dick in a box, I guess, if you think about it from Justin Timberlake. Uh, and it was like this 25 feet tall f- penis, and it was erected by a large tank of gas. And sometime during the set, the penis would pop up during, I think it was during the right fight for the right to party. And they had a go-go dancer in a cage. Uh, one night, some someone, do you know who Fishbone is? Yes. Yes, if you know who Red Hot Chili Peppers is, yes. you would know who Fishbone is. Fishbone, I think, is the one who played the joke on them by buying a bunch of live crabs. And they somehow put them on that hydraulic penis without anyone's knowledge. So when that penis popped up that night or came up, the the crabs were wriggling all over it, right on top of the head. I know, it's crazy. So people blame Rick <laughs> for this frat boy phase. Do you take umbrage at frat boy? Because you were, you, were you were a frat boy. Not really. I mean, I don't, you were. No, I don't take offense to it. I mean... Um, okay. Yeah. Now, did Christian, was he very um, creative in his frat boy um, things that he thought of fun to party to? No, I was stoned most of the time. He was. Just... Okay, that's good frat boy. That's good. Yeah. That's what they were, yeah, too. I, really, I liked weed. What can I say? They did, too. So, people blame Rick for this frat boy phase that the Beasties embodied, and Kate, their own old bandmate, once called Rick a meathead, meathead sexist asshole. Which he was, maybe. So Rick acknowledged that he pushed the band to adopt a pro-wrestling style of outrageousness, but he says that they took the whole thing further than he could have imagined. He said it was almost like their interpretation of what they thought I liked. Uh, like the giant, he said, the, for, in, for, in, for example, the giant hydraulic penis was in bad taste. And he said, I've never had a beer in my life. That's what he said at the time. I don't know if that's true nowadays, but whatever. So the tour took a disastrous turn when they toured England. And because of their antics, there was a lot of advanced publicity of fear and loathing on the part of the tabloid press in England. And uh, they weren't satisfied with that bad press. Oh, no, they had to take it to another level. So Russell came up with some scheme and said, look, at a party, look, you go punch Jam Master J in the face so we can get that on the cover of magazines. So Yauk did that. He punched Jam Master J in the face, and the Beasties went along with it because it was fun, and Russell said, I did it to make money. That's what he said at the time. I know, it's crazy. So when the Beastie Boys played at this old theater in Liverpool, people were spitting at them and throwing beer cans at them. It's not good. And they said, they would say, cool out, don't throw anything. So the crowd started throwing, throwing bottles. Ugh. And they walked off, and the crowd bum-rushed the stage and tore it up, tore it down. And in London, the cops from Liverpool arrested Ad Rock that next day because they said some girl in the audience said a, that the can that he threw hit her in the face. So he spent a few nights in jail. And at the time, he said it wasn't that bad. So a woman asked them for an autograph in a pretty rude way, according to Adam Yauk. And they were running late, and Adam Yauk says, look, I'm sorry, we have to go. She said, if you don't give me an autograph right now, I'm going to stitch you up in the press. And he said that he reacted with something like, fuck you. And they drove away, and the next day there was a headline in the newspaper that said, Beastie Boys mock dying children. And after that, Parliament wanted to expel them from the country. Wow. 
Wow. <laughs> Look at Megan's face. Jeez. So at another show, Adam Yauch decided that he didn't want to go on stage, so Mac and Mike and Mike D and Ad Rock ran out like maniacs, but Yauch sat on the flight case off to the side and delivered his line. And then at some point, he dumped a bucket of beer into the middle of the stage, stomped up and down on it, and in the middle of the song, he threw a little temper tantrum saying, bored, 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 bored. And this kind of shows how things get out of hand. They became depressed. They thought they wanted all of this fame, but they realized that it really wasn't what they wanted after all, you know. And it must have been exhausting. Mm-hmm. All that sounds exhausting. Yep. But I guess this is a cautionary tale about be careful of what you wish for. You know what I mean? When you're that young, you're just like, yeah, whatever. Well, it's the money, it's the party, it's the girls. It's yeah, the everything. The access, it's, yeah. it's all of that. I mean, and I'm kind of glad they dealt with that so early on. Kind of like how you said you dealt with everything early on at Disney about you learned your worth. Yeah, absolutely. I think it probably mellowed them out and leveled them off a little bit. And right. And then they, you know, they, they became pros. And that's probably when they really started taking off. Right. Yeah. One of their friends said that he would talk to Mike D. And Mike D would say, oh, it's going great. You know, it's, it's amazing. But he started talking to Yalk. And Yalk is saying, this sucks. I fucking hate this. I, I just want to come home from all this. And Yauk came to see many of the fans that were in the audience as kind of meatheads who had bullied him in high school. He recognized, you know, how this went for full circle, so to speak. And he was drinking way too much. He got a hold of a gun on one tour stop and started playing around with it. Yeah, exactly. So they watched the proposed... Um, so, okay, here we go. This is when things started really to go bad, okay? I'm going to break this down. So, as you can imagine, conflict started happening with Rick. Um, and one of the first signs of the conflict was the second video for No, Slip, no Sleep to Brooklyn. I know you know that song. Mm-hmm. In which the Slayer guitarist, Kerry King, plays the guitar solo. And Rick definitely wanted Kerry in the video. He's in the video. But Rick came up with another idea. He didn't want Kerry just in it. He wanted Carrie to do, an, they wanted them to do an effect where Carrie would be, appear to be 60 feet tall and the Beastie Boys would be like little imps next to him. So in other words, he's tall, they look really tiny next to him, and they were like, no, we're not going to do that. We're the, we're the band in the song, right? So it didn't happen, but that's kind of started as the first sign of conflict, I think, with, with Rick Rubin. But then things turned really bad when Yauk and their friend Tom Cushman wrote a movie that the Beastie Boys were going to do called Scare Stupid. I'm kind of glad they didn't do it because it probably would have been something stupid. But <laughs> it was about the Beastie Boys going to a haunted house. They were probably going to be drunk where mayhem would ensue, went and sue. And it was a comedy like Abbott and Costello. So Rick told uh, Ad Rock that it's great. Let's do it. And by the way, Rick, Russell and Rick would get 90% of the profits, and the BC boys would get only 10% to be split among the three of them. And this is note to the children. If your producer is also your manager and your label head, you know, nobody's going to fight for you. Mm-hmm. If you got that person doing all those three things, mm-hmm. it's a conflict of interest. And so they realized that, and they started taking meetings with other Hollywood folks about it. And... Uh, Universal Pictures was going to come forward with about $4 million to bankroll the whole thing. And so they told Rick, we're going to go make our movie with Universal. 
And Rick is like, uh-uh, no, you're not. Mm-mm. In your contract, it says you can't do anything that has anything to do with music without me. And uh, he said he basically squashed the whole thing. And that really pissed them off, I think. Russell Simmons said later that no record company should do that. And he said, what I should have done was tell Rick, forget it. They think it's a better opportunity. It's a bigger budget. It's a different kind of film. It protects our movie, music, I'm sorry. I was young and inexperienced, Russell said, and made the mistake of not protecting them. And Rick made the mistake of not understanding that you can't control everything. Um... After the tour, Yauk had a conversation with Russell in 1987. He, he said, I'm done. And Russell's like, look, look. He said, I'm done being the drunk guy, playing the drunk guy role at the party routine night after night. And he said that Russell wasn't listening to him and that Russell kept trying to convince him to go back on tour and that he should just pretend to keep doing the drunk guy. Just pretend night after night and get back on tour. And that was it for Adam Yauk. Um, he told Russell that he quit, at, but he never told Adam, Ad, Ad Rock and Mike D. So they didn't know that he had quit. Um, and it's sad because they, they would later say in the book that they had spent so much time in a studio together with him and just being friends, but they were all kind of sick with each other by the end of it all, literally. They were all sick with each other and they went their separate ways. And they never performed You Gotta right Fight for Your Right to Party ever after 1987. Never performed it. Can you oh. believe that? Well, he was over it. He didn't want to. He, he was wanna, done. He would, yeah. Hey, you know what? Good for him. I mean, look. Yeah. I mean, in, in the business where it's, you know, there's a lot of money on the line. And so You're right. And people guys, will sell their soul and keep doing it. You're right. Right. They could play that song over and over and over again. And I people mean, be like, I'll just sing it. Yeah. And he just said, they didn't do that. What the hell? That I'm done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had standards, I guess you could say that, because Mike D and Ad Rock said in their book that they didn't sing um, Fight for Your Right to Party um, because it was a marker in time when things went really sour for them. And he said, but mainly the song turned corny for them as they yeah. got older. And it took a few years for them to be able to look back at the good stuff about that album, License to Ill, which we all know, Paul Revere, you know, and so things have been simmering. I want to say that things have been simmering for Adam Yauk for a while up until that point to when he quit. He would say in an interview years later that he was pissed and upset at Rick because Def Jam and Rush Management, which is Russell, had gone on this selfish tangent because all the money started coming in around that point. And according to his bandmates, he was already irritated and disillusioned with Rick because Yauk was into engineering, as we know, being a techno whiz. Um, he wasn't good with just being told what to do, as we know. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to learn how to get certain sounds through amps and speakers and microphones. And Rick just took over and wouldn't include him in any of the cool stuff that he wanted to be included in. And so also he didn't like that he wasn't making any suggestions regarding the videos and, uh, you know, he was just very much done. He loved film and he loved making videos, as we will find out later. And he declared to their Tom, Tom Cushman, who wrote the script with him, Scared Stupid, he said, I'm never going back to the Beastie Boys. I'm done. Done. And I'm not going to do it ever again. So he went back to New York uh, and created a rock band called Brooklyn with Tom. 
and members of Bad Brains and another New York hardcover, hardcore act called Murphy's Law. Ad Rock went off and made a movie and hung out in L.A. with his new girlfriend, Molly Ringwall. Mm. New Molly Ringwall yep. is? 16 Candles. 16 Candles, uh, yeah. What was the other one? Uh, the t- Pretty in Pink. It's Pretty in Pink, and then there was... Uh, yeah, what was... Um, Breakfast Club. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was in all that. Mm-hmm. She dated Ad Rock. And so Mike went off and did his thing, and I'm sure he was decompressing somewhere. So Tom said that one night when him and Yalk were drinking tequila and working on music for the Brooklyn band, they decided to go downtown to the Brooklyn Navy Yards. Have you been to New York, by the way? I have been. Really? Yeah. Where'd you go? Where'd you go for? Uh, I went right after I graduated college because I'd never been. So I went there, and then I was just there this past June for a. Uh, Who'd you go with in after college? I have a buddy that lives there. He actually really? Still, he still works for the Yankees. Yeah, he so works he, for the Yankees. Did you go to a Yankees game? We did not. So this is when he first moved out there. He okay. Was, he had just moved out. I think it was like 2010 he had moved out. I was there in 2011. Okay. So he was just kind of starting the gig there. Is that when A-Rod was still there? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah okay. A-Rod was still there. Um, what did he do for the Yankees, just out of curiosity? You don't have to say his name, but... Um, God, he's done a bunch of stuff. I mean, at one point... Has he, he been promoted? Oh, yeah. No, like, he's he's won a he's won a he's uh, an Emmy. He's won an Emmy for... Uh, what? Video editing. And it's not the Emmy Emmys, but wow. it's... Wow. I guess it's, it's an Emmy, it's though. It's an Emmy. It's a, big, it's a big deal. I mean, he's he's uber-talented. He's unreal. Wow. Uh, right now, he does all the editing for, like... Um, the walk-up videos or like the player introduction videos or, oh, look at or him. he did he won the emmy for the jeter retirement video i've heard great things i want to go it. back to new york too i haven't been since i was 16. i love oh you need to go back it was awesome There's something about that city i mean that you walk in the that energy. city it's you feel it i yes it's as cheesy as that is to say it's no like, it's true you feel the energy that comes out of it like you That's walk true. down the street and it's in the morning and you're like i'm happy i'm like dude there's a magic to parts of that city it is i'm happy at in new york city i really am a quick story my friend when i first went there because i had this really thick thick southern accent because i was from south carolina so i go and she's like listen because you like to say hi to everybody Please don't say hi to everybody, okay? That meets your eye. Sure enough, here I am. Hi. 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 <laughs> hey, how you doing? Da, 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 da. You know, country, country, country bumpkin, right? And before we knew it, people were following us. And we turned around. She's like, didn't I tell you not to say hi to everybody? So that's what happened. Oh, but, man. Oh, because they knew. Like, oh, easy target. Yeah, boom. <laughs> ding dong, ding yeah. dong. Um, but I had a blast. I saw the Fugees. When they're That's first awesome. at a festival, it was like by accident. It was their first, um, it was like a long time when they first came out, right before the, um, the oh, Fuji La album. Um, but it was that album before that. It was Nappy Heads. They sang Nappy Heads. It was awesome. And we were wondering, who's this group singing Nappy Heads? And it was turned out to be the Fugees. Awesome. And we saw them at a festival in Brooklyn. That's wow. so fun. Anyway. So one night, Tom Cushman, the one that wrote the script with him, right, said that one night he and Yauk had been drinking tequila and working on the um, music for the band Brooklyn, and they decided to go down by the Brooklyn Navy Yards underneath the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. Yauk had his gun he was shooting with. He had his gun with him. So this car is coming down the street, 
And all of a sudden, Yauk just picks up the gun and levels it. And he aimed, <laughs> look at your eyes. He aimed it off about 20 feet, but shot in the basic direction of the car. The car swerved, and Tom was like, oh, my God. And he said that they take off running. He starts running. And as fast as he could back to Yauk's apartment. And they get back into the door, and they're sitting there huffing and puffing. And he says very quietly to Yauk, why did you do that? And Yauk says, I don't know. It's just dark. I mean, that's that's rock bottom. Yeah, get it together, bud. That's rock bottom. <laughs> what are well, you doing? I mean, he's, I, look, this is all just speculation. Can you imagine? Dude, he was, he probably still. Not it's that, remnants of that Beastie Boy shit. It's, yeah, it's but that, that's so careless and reckless. Like, I mean, it's just, I mean, there's just a lot of anger that's built up. I mean, yeah. I think it's anger at himself. It's anger how things went. It's mm. anger because I think he truly, truly loved what he was doing with the mm-hmm. Beastie Boys. And mm-hmm. then, when they got off the rails and tried to put on a persona that wasn't them, mm. I think he deep down just because he's an intelligent guy. Like, I mean, I think Extremely. I think you you had mentioned like guys very very talented, very very smart, mm-hmm. very very uh, hands on, and I think he lost control. Somebody lost control. And I think he he didn't realize it, and I think mm. he, there was just a lot of animosity towards himself. Mm. That's true. Maybe so, you know you're making a good guesstimate there. That's probably true. Because I couldn't understand it, and I was like, "That's," but it's pretty dead on what you probably said. A lot of emotions going on. Of course, yeah, I think it's. I and think he, that was with his best friends, Adam, Ad Rock, and Mike D were his best friends. I mean, that's the thing. It's like it's his best friends. Mm-hmm. It's his. I mean, that was his life. I mean, they, I mean, when they first started, they had a ton of fun, and then they just kind of lost yes. their way. They lost yes. their way. I mean, look. He, it's not like he came from nothing, so right. you can't use the excuse that he had nothing and he was right. just enamored by this. But he also lived the life that was the opposite of himself. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, I think it was probably more appealing for him mm-hmm. to live that life because he'd been put down by those those bullies or mm-hmm. that that group of people for so so long mm-hmm. that it was almost like refreshing. Like now I'm on top. But once he saw, kind of realized, like nah, I'm not on top. I'm just just like these pieces of shit. Mm-hmm. Give shit for everything, right? Um, I think that's when the self-loathing started, and, mm. and then uh, from there it just went to a deep spiral. I mean, look, mm. you start distancing yourself away from a lot of things when you don't like what you, anything about yourself. So mm-hmm. he didn't like himself and the and, things that he did, right? So even the stuff that you like, you start to distance. You start to go in the hole, and you start to try to create a new life. And uh, I think that's probably what he did. So I think wow. at that point he just. He basically had enough, and I, I think he he probably thought he was didn't matter what he did anymore. Mm. So depression, whatever it was, but that got a little deep. But that's that's probably what that was. Mm-hmm. Damn, that's deep. Thank you. Mm-hmm. That might have been a channeling going on. Could have been. Could have been. I blacked out. What happened? <laughs> Name that movie. Thanks, thanks, Yelk. Uh, so Brooklyn paid, played one show in New York City, only one, and it sounded, they said, like, Bachman Turner Overdrive, and I don't know any song by Bachman Turner Overdrive. I only know Bachman from the Stephen King, um, book. Which I can't, one? Which one? The, to- the Tower. Oh. Richard Bachman? I don't know how I know that. I don't know either. But the <laughs> Stat Tower, department, they made, did, Stat department. Did they make a movie about that? 
Yeah. Howard? Yes, they did. They did. With Idris Elba. Yes, they did. You're right. And Matthew oh, McConaughey, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. Did. That was last year. Yeah. yeah. Last year, two years ago. He used a pseudonym last for year. some of those books, yeah, called Richard Bachman. Hmm. Anyway. So at some point, Russell wanted them to get back in the studio and make an album, and they weren't ready for that. So Russell insisted, and that's when the lawsuits against Def Jam and Rush management began to fly around. So they wanted out of their deal, period. And Yauk would later say that they almost dreaded getting back together. Um, But it was the only way he said that we were going to get off of Def Jam. Why? Because their lawyers were telling them that we telling us we had to start making something to prove to the record companies that we could exist outside of Def Jam and Rick Rubin. Uh, one more thing, they didn't get hardly any money from License to Ill. By the way, they got no money from License to Ill. People don't know that. Isn't that crazy? Russell and Rick got most of the money. Mm-hmm. And they had to, to get out of that contract, they had to cut a deal with Def Jam where if they choose not to go after a certain amount of money they were owed, they could have their freedom. So freedom and no money. Wow. And probably that name. And probably that name, yeah. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to listen to the songs that were mentioned in the series, you can go to a curated playlist of the artists and Spotify under Rockabye's playlist. Please subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. One additional note, the information in the episodes are based on my best research. I'm your host, Melissa. Always remember, you're a shining star no matter who you are.